Hey everyone, welcome to Mace Way. Glad you're here. Uh, go ahead and grab some uh, something to drink if you haven't already. So there's some water and some coffee over there. Coffee should be brewing. If it's not ready yet, it'll be ready in a minute. There's there's some snacks over there on the table, and uh, we'll get going with our call together um, here in just a second. So uh, we're doing a story tonight. Um, David Klein is going to be talking to us, uh, get, leading the dialogue, and we're really glad to have him doing that. And um, we're going to do a, a short story. Um, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, wrote uh, called Jesus Christ in Texas. If you didn't see that on the um, on our weekly, then uh, it's, it's actually a short um, story, about 10 pages long, and we'll tell you about it, um, and, and also uh, uh, have a few excerpts, I think, um, too. But one of the things that it's talking about, it's, it's the story of a man um, coming to this small Texas town, um, and he's a uh, mulatto, a white-skinned uh, black man, and ends up, uh, it's, he's basically the Christ figure, and in the story, he ends up getting himself killed, and um, so it's an interesting story of both race and kind of people who don't understand other people, and um, so anyway, uh, when we were in text this week uh, talking about this um, story, then Josh Bussman was talking about um, this song by Chris Christopherson called Jesus Was a Capricorn. And uh, it's certainly a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I think it's actually got some of the same story as our uh, story tonight. So um, it's a pretty simple song. Uh, you're welcome to sing along. We'd love to have you, but you can also just listen. Capricorn, he ate organic food. He believed in love and peace and never wore no shoes. Long hair, beard, and sandals, funky bunch of friends. Reckon they just nail him up if he came down again. Cause everybody's gotta have somebody to look down on who they can feel better than any time they please. Someone doing something dirty, decent folks can frown on. You can't find nobody else, help yourself to me. Rednecks cuss and hippies fall their hair. Lovers laugh at straights who laugh at freaks, laugh at squares. Some folks hate the whites who hate the blacks who hate the clan. Most of us hate anything that we don't understand. Cause everybody's gotta have somebody to look down on who they can feel better than anytime they please. Someone's doing something dirty, decent folks can frown on. You can't find nobody else, help yourself to me. Yeah, help yourself to me. Help yourself to me, Reverend. Yeah, why don't you help yourself to me, Judge? 
Thanks, guys. Uh, Tim Carlos playing guitar, Dale Baker on drums. Thanks. And uh, welcome again. Uh, it's really gl uh, great to have you guys here on such a uh, hot couple days. I hope you guys didn't melt out there. I know some of you were out there playing softball and doing some other stuff, and I'm glad you survived. You're there, like, barely. I, I saw a couple of people crawl in. Um, but anyway, thanks for making it to Mace Way. And uh, we're continuing our series in... Um, fiction tonight, and so as I mentioned, we're doing this story, uh, this short story called Jesus Christ in Texas, and we'll tell you more about that, but it's been a fun series, and so if you came in after I said that and wondered why we were doing a Chris Christopherson song, I don't really think Jesus called himself a Capricorn, but it was meant to be, you know, a story about our story tonight. Um, anyway, uh, we uh, are a community that meets weekly to worship, and um, so um, if you want to find out more information, we do have a website, EmmausWay.net. Um, there's information by the door. If you look, there's contact uh, information, too, on our sheets. Uh, generally, actually, no, there's not today. So if you go to the website, that's where our contact information will be for you today. And um, I, we do have a couple announcements. Um, one thing, David had an announcement. Where, where's, oh, yeah, sorry, you're right in front of me. Thank you. Yeah, go ahead. Um, all right, so in about a week, or two weeks, I should say, sorry, two weeks, I'm heading up to Minnesota to take part in what's known as the Powellathon for an organization called Wilderness Wind. Um, Wilderness Wind is a Mennonite-affiliated uh, nonprofit up in Minnesota that leads uh, nature trips, or missions that have nature trips for economically diverse groups. And so I'm participating in their big fundraiser, which is, like I said, it's called the Powellathon. It's a one-day go out and paddle the canoe as far as you can. Um, so I'm with my brother-in-law, and our goal is to do 50 to 70 miles. Um, and all the money that they raise, it goes to paying for uh, scholarships for campers to come out there. Um, it helps pay for uh, salaries for the uh, guides for the summer. They also put 10% back to the community that they're in to help uh, for conservation awareness, things like that. Um, and so every participant has played, uh, pledged to raise at least $500. Um, and so that's part of my goals to try to help raise some money for the organization. The fees only cover about two-thirds of the cost, so this fundraiser helps cover that other third. Um, and so if this is something that you guys feel like you, know, you may want to help support me, I have some information, and come see me after, uh, after church, and I can also um, send you some information. The uh, website is worldofthiswind.org. Um, so like I said, it's a cool organization. They bring out like inner city youth who have never been out in the uh, age before to kind of have some of these trips and experiences. So I so want you guys yeah. Thanks, David. And, you know, that's one of the things about Emmaus Way as an organic church. A lot of you guys are involved in different projects and uh, with different organizations around Durham. And really, that's how Emmaus Way works is that with like organizations like Durham Can um, and uh, our other partnerships like Anic Builds Community and others, we partner with things that are already going on in Durham. So um, you'll oftentimes find that even if you don't see something on a website about a program that we're doing, that people are involved in things around Durham, if you want to ask. And one of the things that we're involved in as our church is we have small groups that meet. And Elizabeth Eifert, I don't know if thank you. Hi, Elizabeth. Elizabeth is in charge of uh, moving folks into small groups and kind of helping people find out about them and what's going on. So um, uh, your, your email's on the website, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Okay, cool. Um, and since now you know Elizabeth, you can also talk to her. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think, of, was there, there any CAN announcements this week or no, nothing in particular? Okay. Um, I know we have um, one special thing tonight that Chelsea's going to lead us through. Hi, friends. 
So, um, as most of you know, today is unfortunately our very last day with Sarah Hicks as our children's ministry director. Um, we hired her about two years ago, and at that point we had just moved into the space, and um, we had before sort of a, a kind of a nursery school teacher set up, but we realized when we had the space to have separate classrooms that we really thought it was time for us to kind of grow up a little bit and start having things for children of different ages. So um, we went through a pretty intensive hiring process, screening applicants, and uh, Sarah definitely came out on top for a reason. Um, so basically, she has built our children's ministry from the ground up. What we were doing before was just completely volunteer-based and sort of babysitting, if you will, during our service. And uh, Sarah has given of her gifts, talents, and time these past two years to really um, to, to give us something wonderful in terms of curriculum and structure and just um, and just loving our kids, which I think is a gift in and of itself. Uh, the other big thing that we are hugely thankful to Sarah for is that we now have a safe sanctuary policy. Um, and if you don't know what that is, it's basically sort of a list of rules and procedures that we ask all of our parents and volunteers to abide by just to keep them safe and protected. Um, and that's sort of a big step in growing up, if that makes any sense. It's something that most um, churches have in place and uh, something that we would not have known how to do on our own, and so we were really thankful for that. Um, so first off, if you could, I just want you guys to give Sarah a big round of applause. I know we don't clap often, but... Um, <laughs> um, I don't know that I could put into words my gratitude and our gratitude for what you've done for our community. and for the ways that you have touched our children and our volunteers and basically anybody that's come in contact with you. So thank you so much. Um, so I have a couple questions for you. I promise they're not scary. Uh, the first one is, could you tell us some of your favorite memories over the past two years of being involved with us? Okay, so um, first of all, I had no idea that this was even gonna happen. So. <laughs> I think that um, probably one of the first things that has I've been thankful for and one of my best memories has been the way that the church in particular, the people in particular, embraced me. Probably the first memory um, was the way that you guys in particular embraced me when my father was passing away. Um, that was a very difficult time for me and you guys didn't know me very well in that time and there was just so much love here for me and understanding at that time in my life um, other than that those little guys up there um, <laughs> are just so special and unique and um, each of them has an incredible call on their lives. And I say this to them all the time, but um, if there's anything that I want them to gain from the time that I've spent with them, it's that um, they could be anywhere in this world and doing anything and not know anything about God, but God has placed them here and the families that they have um, to hear about the Lord and to be loved by people that are surrounding them with just um, compassion and care daily. 
um, and that they are blessed and chosen. Um, anyway, so, <laughs> I guess um, just there's just been an outpouring of support from this community, and um, I've enjoyed working with the children and being surrounded by you guys. So. Well, as since you're leaving us, we wondered if you could give us a little taste of what you have coming up for you in the future, what's going on, and what do you have going on? Um, so for me, uh, this is a time of um, deciding on graduate school and um, work. I've, I was living in Briar Creek when I started here. Um, I'm now in Nightdale. Um, and my family's in Nightdale, and my son was recently diagnosed as intellectually disabled, um, and he's six, and so I need so I need the support of like my family. Yeah, no, this is why we want you here to know. My next question kind of leads into that. As you go forward and we send you off into the world and, and miss you, is there anything that we can be praying for you about um, as you go? Um, so I've always um, felt the call to ministry, and that's definitely something. Like I'm, I'm a hospital chaplain at Duke right now, and finishing that internship and trying to discern um, what type of grad school to go to, but I also feel this pull as being a single mom um, with a special needs child. So there's this like balance of trying to do this and do that. And so definitely that would be the transparency of where to pray for me at. So. If you guys wouldn't mind, can we all just bow our heads in prayer and sort of pray over Sarah as we send her off? Father God, thank you so much for bringing this amazing woman into our midst. Thank you for blessing her with the gifts and talents that she was able to share with us over these past two years. God, as we prepare to say goodbye to her tonight, um, help her to feel loved and supported. Help her to know that even though she's not in our midst anymore, that she's still a part of our community and that we still care for her and think of her. And Lord, I pray that as she faces big decisions and big transitions in her life, that you would just find a way to make those, those choices clear, um, to give her peace about them, that you would provide support where it's needed as far as caring for her son and um, finishing school. And God, we just are so thankful that um, you gave her to us for this time. These things we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you, sir. Um, this is just this is a side note. We have um, cake that we'll have after. Um, so when we're all done having our uh, Eucharist meal, we can have some cake. So. Thank um, you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we have one more announcement from uh, Dave Everett about some uh, Massway financial updates. Massway, sorry. Um, so I wanted to report that giving through the end of June, halfway through the year, we have brought in $41,300, which is a tremendous amount of money. Thank you guys for that. If we're looking halfway through our budget um, and we're comparing that uh, to last year this time, we are $3,000 ahead of where we were last year. And we've got the same number that we're trying to hit as we hit last year. So we think that's a very good thing. Um, if you take the actual just kind of if, if giving were the same every month, 
um, which it's not. But if it were, then we'd consider ourselves about $2,000 behind um, where we would be at the midpoint. We're $2,000 behind half of our budget at this point, if that makes sense. Um, but we always have a really good end of the year, so we're, we're thinking that'll be corrected. If we have a second half of the year like we had last year, then we should be in great shape. So thanks to everybody for your contribution. Thanks, Sylvia. And um, you guys may not know uh, that there is a place to donate on the website, and uh, also um, there's a bowl out front, a silver bowl, and uh, you can place donations in there. So if you've seen a silver bowl and thought, hey, that's pretty, it's also useful. Um, we want to move into our conversation tonight, and we tend to uh, do that with um, songs to begin with, to have some songs to kind of uh, move our minds in the direction, our minds and thoughts in the direction of the conversation. So as I mentioned, David Klein's going to do our conversation tonight, uh, lead us in the dialogue. Um, but these two songs kind of come from uh, a couple different places. One is a, um, a reading of uh, All Along the Watchtower, which is an old Bob Dylan song. And the uh, I, I read a great essay about this song saying that it's very simple language that can sometimes go by us if we don't take a minute to know the uh, archetypes that he's talking about. You know, the joker in this uh, story, the person was writing was saying, the joker that, that Dylan's talking to us about is the artist or the, um, the creative person, the prophet. And the thief in this story is the Messiah. And so the watchtower and the city is not um, some sort of thing that we're kind of cheering for their protection, but it's actually sort of the status quo. And so this song talks in very simple language about how the joker and the thief are talking about defeating, changing the status quo. And I think that has a lot to do with our story tonight. And then the song that Dar Williams wrote called When I Was a Boy is a story that she wrote about kind of being a tomboy as a girl growing up and then as she became a woman as an adult she started realizing that the rules had really changed and she felt very misunderstood and um, sort of it, it talks about places where in gender we miss each other and so uh, like as we, we always say we'd love for you to sing along but uh, if you'd like to listen that's great too so all on the watchtower There aren't many here among us 
was a boy Scared the pants off of my mom Climbed what I would climb upon I don't know how I survived I guess I knew the tricks that all boys knew All boys knew You can walk me
Thanks, Wade. So welcome to Amaze Way. And uh, before we have our dialogue tonight, um, we typically say hi to our neighbors, uh, introduce ourselves, and uh, pass the peace of Christ to each other. So take a few minutes, say hi to someone, preferably someone you don't know, and introduce yourself and go get something to eat or drink. And we'll be back in a few minutes. So my name is David Klein, um, and I got an email from Tim, I think on Tuesday afternoon, um, saying that all three of our ministers here at Amaze Way would be unavailable to, to do the, the dialogue. Um, so he sprang this on me, so, um, and he asked, uh, he asked me to, to pick a text for this week, and um, we're in a, a fiction series, so um, I, I picked a, a short story that I thought uh, might be easy, uh, an easy and a quick read for us this week. And um, I'm from Texas originally, and I subscribe to what theologian Stanley Harawas has called the ontological superiority of being from Texas. So naturally, I chose a story that takes place in Texas. Um, so tonight we'll be discussing and reading parts from W.E.B. Du Bois' Jesus Christ in Texas. Um, and before we read, I just wanted to give just a little uh, bit of a background for Du Bois for those who aren't familiar with his writings. Um, he was, uh, du Bois is the, the first African-American to ever receive a Ph.D. from Harvard University. Um, he's one of the preeminent intellectuals writing in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, he was one of the original founders of the NAACP, and Du Bois uh, was a prolific activist, historian, and social critic who devoted his life and worked tirelessly to combat racism in America and the idea of white supremacy. So Du Bois... I, I picked Du Bois because Du Bois is such a great example um, and of someone who gives us a particular insight into Christianity and a particular insight into struggling through faith. Du Bois is someone who's writing at a time when the color of his skin and the color of a lot of people's skin automatically determine them as outsiders to uh, lots of the dominant intellectual conversations going on as outsiders to mainstream Christianity in America, as outsiders to a whole number of, of social privileges and so on. So Du Bois is an example of someone for whom Christianity, or at least the dominant forms of Christianity operating, say, in Jim Crow South in 20th century America, He's someone that's writing and struggling with Christianity for whom Christianity really shouldn't make much sense. Christianity, a type of Christianity that had really ceased to operate as good news to folks and had simply operated as a reinforcement of the social orders and hierarchy of uh, a segregated America. So someone like Du Bois gives us a particular insight into what it means to really wrestle with 
the message of the gospel and wrestle in it in such a way as to wrestle it within, within the very, the very uh, limits and uh, separatedness that Christianity itself had been complicit in, in uh, producing the racialized world. So I'd like you to keep that in mind as we read and discuss this story, um, as reading it as an example of someone who is really struggling to make sense of who Jesus Christ is, of what the gospel means for someone automatically deemed outsider like Du Bois and others are. And so um, AJ is going to read us an excerpt that will probably take about eight to ten minutes to get through, and it's about half the story. Um, so before, before he reads it, I'll just give a sort of a synopsis of the story up until our excerpt. Um, so Jesus Christ in Texas is, takes place in then small town of Waco, um, and a stranger has showed up into Waco, um, and meets, meets some people who invite him to a dinner party. And as it turns out, as is obvious through the story, the stranger is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ has shown up in Waco, Texas, and has been invited to a dinner party. And so everything's going smoothly. People are glad that this person's here until it's revealed that this stranger, or Jesus, is not a white man. So Jesus has been sort of in the shadows up until this point, and at the dinner party there's a moment where the, the lights go on and everybody realizes that he's not a white man, he's actually uh, a kind of ambiguous, ra- racially ambiguous person. He's what Du Bois calls a mulatto, or a, a mixed race person. And so this unsettles everything and creates quite a commotion, and at this point the stranger realizes he's not really welcome at the house and quietly leaves. And as he leaves, he, he finds himself on a country road um, and he runs into an escaped convict who's, who's a black man that is, has escaped the, the holding cell um, in Waco and is being chased down by an angry mob, but has managed to, to escape for the moment. And he runs into Jesus on, on the road and that's where we pick up. So this is uh, the second half of Jesus Christ in Texas. Alrighty. The stranger made a cup of his hands and gave the man water to drink, bathed his hot head, and gently took the chains and irons from his feet. By and by the convict stood up. Day was dawning above the treetops. He looked into into the stranger's face, and for a moment a gladness swept over the stains of his face. Why, you are a nigger too, he said. Then the convict seemed anxious to justify himself. I never had no chance, he said furtively. Thou shalt not steal, said the stranger. The man bridled. But how about them? Can they steal? Didn't they steal a whole year's work? And then when I stole to keep from starving? He glanced at the stranger. No, I didn't steal just to keep from starving. I sold to be stealing. I can't seem to keep from stealing. Seems like, seems like when I see things, I just must be yeah, I'll try. The convict looked down at his striped clothes, but the stranger had taken off his long coat. He had put it around him, and the stripes disappeared. In the opening morning, the black man started toward the log, the low log farmhouse in the distance, while the stranger stood watching him. There was a new glory in the day. The black man's face cleared up, and the farmer was glad to get him. 
All day the black man worked as he had never worked before. The farmer gave him some cold food. You can sleep in the barn, he said, and turned away. How much do I get a day? asked the black man. The farmer scowled. Now see here, said he. If you'll sign a contract for the season, I'll give you $10 a month. I won't sign no contract, said the black man doggedly. Yes, you will, said the farmer threateningly, or I'll call the convict guard. And he grinned. The convict shrank and slouched to the barn. As night fell, he looked out and saw the farmer leave the place. Slowly, he crept out and sneaked toward the house. He looked through the kitchen door. No one was there, but the supper was spread as if the mistress had laid it and gone out. He ate ravenously. Then he looked into the front room and listened. He could hear low voices on the porch. On the table lay a gold watch. He gazed at it. In a moment, he was beside it. His hands were on it. Quickly, he slipped out of the house and slouched toward the field. He saw his employer coming along the highway. He fled back in terror and around to the front of the house, when suddenly he stopped. He felt the great dark eyes of the stranger and saw the same dark cloak-like coat where the stranger sat on the doorstep talking with the mistress of the house. Slowly, guiltily, he turned back, entered the kitchen, and laid the watch stealthily where he found it, then rushed wildly back toward the stranger with arms outstretched. The woman had laid supper for her husband, and going down from the house, had walked out toward her neighbors. She was gone but a little while, and when she came back, she started to see a dark figure on the doorsteps under the tall red oak. She thought it was the new Negro until he said in a soft voice, Will you give me bread? Reassured at the voice of a white man, she answered quickly in her soft southern tones, Well, certainly. She was a little woman, and once had been pretty, but now her face was drawn with work and care. She was nervous and always thinking, wishing, wanting for something. She went in and got him some cornbread and a glass of cool, rich buttermilk. Then she came out and sat down beside him. She began, quite unconsciously, to tell him about herself, the things she had done and had not done and the things she had wished for. She told him of her husband and this new farm they were trying to buy. She said it was hard to get niggers to work. She said they ought all to be in the chain gang and made to work. Even then some run away. Only yesterday one had escaped, and another the day before. At last she gossiped of her neighbors, how good they were and, and how bad they were. And do you like them all? asked the stranger. She hesitated. Most of them, she said. And then, looking into his face and putting her hand into his, as though he were her father, she said, There are none that I hate. No, none at all. He looked away, holding her hand in his, and said dreamily, you love your neighbor as yourself? She hesitated. I try, she began, and then looked the way he was looking. Down under the hill where lay a little half-ruined cabin. They're niggers, she said briefly. He looked at her. Suddenly, confusion came over her, and she insisted she knew not why. But they are niggers. With a sudden impulse, she arose and hurriedly lighted the lamp that stood just within the door and held it above her head. She saw his dark face and curly hair. She shrieked in anger, in angry terror, and rushed down the path. And just as she rushed down, the black convict came running up with hands outstretched. They met in mid-path. And before he could stop, he had to run against her, and she fell heavily to earth and lay white and still. Her husband came rushing around the house with a cry and an oath. I knew it, he said. It's that runaway nigger. He held the black man struggling to the earth, and raised his voice to a yell. 
Down the highway came the convict guard with hound and mob and gun. They paused across the fields. The farmer uh, motioned to them. He attacked my wife, he gasped. The mob snarled and worked silently. Right to the limb of the red oak, they hoisted the struggling, writhing black man, while others lifted the dazed woman. Right and left, as she tottered to the house, she searched for the stranger with a yearning, but the stranger was gone, and she told none of her guests. No, no, I want nothing, she insisted, until they left her, as they thought, asleep. For a time, she lay still, listening to the departure of the mob. Then she rose. She shuddered as she heard the creaking of the limb where the body hung. But resolutely, she crawled to the window and peered out into the moonlight. She saw the dead man. He stretched out his arms like a cross, looking upward. She gasped and clung to the window seal. Behind the swaying body and down where their little half-ruined cabin lay, a single flame flashed up amid the far-off shout and cry of the mob. A fierce joy sobbed up through the tear in her soul and then sank abashed as she watched the flame rise, suddenly whirling into one crimson column. It shot to the top of the sky and threw great arms athwart the, gr- the gloom into above the world, and behind the roped and swaying form below hung quivering and burning a great crimson cross. She hid her dizzy, aching head in an agony of tears and dared not look, for she knew her dry lips moved despised and rejected of men. She knew, and the very horror of it lifted her dull and shrinking eyelids. There, heaven tall, earth wide, hung the stranger on the crimson cross, riven and blood-stained, with thorn-crowned head and pierced hands. She stretched her arms and shrieked. He did not hear. He did not see. His calm, dark eyes, all sorrowful, were fastened on the writhing, twisting body of the thief, and a voice came out of the winds of the night, saying, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Thanks so much, AJ. So this story is really a story about mistaken identity. It's a story about not recognizing the stranger for who he really was. The people, the people encountered Jesus and they didn't recognize him for who they were, for who he was. And so I don't, I don't know if any of you have been uh, uh, paying attention to any of the latest viral videos that have shown up on the internet recently. Uh, one of them was, and I, I think this was on uh, the, the Daily Show this week, um, as, I, as I remember, uh, one of the, the most recent viral videos that's been circulating uh, is, a, is a video of uh, an interview on, I think it's MSNBC, where a news, a newscaster or a, or a pundit is interviewing a congressman about the recent economy uh, crisis. And you can tell that these people are, are two people who, who don't agree with each other and are just going back and forth. And it's getting really heated. They're talking about the economy. Um, and they're each trying to one-up each other with, with their point of view or, or whatnot. And there's a point where the newscaster lady interrupts the congressman um, as he's making some, for, as far as I can tell, a very intelligent point about the economy. She interrupts him. And she says, I'm, I'm sorry, congressman. Do you have a degree in economics? And without missing a beat, the congressman fires back. As a matter of fact, ma'am, yes, I do, with highest honors. 
<laughs> and the, the woman doing the interview, sort of, you can tell she's, she's at a loss for words, and, and you can see the red flooding into her face. And, and the interview goes on for a few more minutes, and she stumbles through a couple of questions. But it's very, very obvious who has lost the argument and who is the fool here. You would have thought that some, either some intern really screwed up and, and didn't do his research, or she could have saved a lot of embarrassment by just asking a few simple questions about the congressman's background or so on. And so that, this is an, another example of simply mistaking someone's identity for who we think this person ought to be. The newscaster thinks that this person is a congressman and that she knows what she's talking about more than this congressman who's just going through the party line or whatever. But she never asked him who he was, and so she leaves the interview very embarrassed. And so fundamentally, the story we've just read, like I said before, is really a story about mistaken identity. And so both Jesus and the, the convict are mistaken for people that they really aren't. So Jesus is mistaken at first for someone that should be able to fit in at a dinner party with a, a bunch of upper-class white people. And as soon as they realize that he's not the person they think he is, then he needs to leave. And the convict is quite literally mistaken for someone who has attacked a woman. And that leaves him eventually being killed by this mob. So I wanted to ask tonight, what are your, what are your reactions? What are your initial reactions to, du Bois, to how Du Bois has illustrated a case of mistaken identity? How do you read what's going on here in terms of not being able, being able to recognize people for who they are? Yeah, wait. One thing, if, if uh, people didn't read it, at the dinner party, there's a rector or a pastor. And it's interesting because when he runs into Jesus, he, he asks several times, don't I know you? Haven't we met? And, and, and you know, the, the stranger, the Jesus character, keeps kind of going, no. And, and then finally says, I can't remember his quote, but it's like, I never knew you. It's basically the idea. And I thought that was uh, an interesting part of the puzzle as well, just that this person who's in the clergy... Was kind of like, did I use? I think maybe I should know you, shouldn't I? And yet the answer was, yeah. Yeah. Some sometimes people who think that they know, you know, uh, who think they know someone best have actually gotten it completely wrong. And so the the minister, you know, who should who should know who Jesus Christ is, can't recognize him when he's right in front of his face. Any other thoughts? Once I try to do that with God, it, 
I start and I can't find it anywhere. Like I, I get myself confused because I feel like I should know already. Um, and so like these people, they kind of had their, they were the rich people, they were the smart people, but they should have everything figured out. Um, in a sense, they couldn't be humble about what reality was for them or how the world could work in a sense. Yeah. yeah, that's a really great point about how so often our confidence in ourselves or how so often our, our pride um, about whatever, about our social status or, or about our achievements or about the friends that we have or the degrees that we have cloud our heads so much about sort of stepping outside of that in order to, to see people as they really are. Any other thoughts about mistaken identity? Yeah. Think about the story metaphorically. That this is this is who Jesus was in this context, as opposed to a biblical context or whatever. It really struck me that I think so many times we think about God and our encounters with God, we feel pretty confident about who we are. We're trying to figure out who God is, but Jesus shows up in the story, and every time he interacts with somebody, it it doesn't tell you as much about him as a figure as it does about that other person. And so in their interactions with him, it almost seems like they have this revelatory encounters about who they are. And he's just almost sort of a catalyst for their own self-discovery. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, and so and that uh, relates to to my next point. I think Wade Wade touched on this by um, bringing up that even the minister... Uh, can't recognize Jesus, um, and that that uh, how much what Du Bois is is unveiling here is that our inability to see Jesus, our inability to see people who who for their, who to see people for who they really are, so often happens at the site of religion. Um, it happens in the church. It happens as. We convince ourselves that we're good Christian folks or whatnot. And Du Bois shows us that at the heart of Christianity's complicity and production of such a segregated world is really a failure to identify Jesus. And that's really uh, us making the mistake that Jesus ought to be someone who thinks like us, that looks like us, that that uh, acts just the way we act. Or rather, that Jesus is someone who acts the way we think that our best selves should act. And so Jesus d- uh, ceases to be, uh, to be his own person. Jesus ceases to be someone who comes into our world and confronts us in our lives. And he becomes simply a mirror of our ideal selves. Um, and that's really a way that we control Jesus in our lives, that we control uh, the encounter and the message that we receive from Jesus. And I'm not saying, of course, that any of us do this intentionally. Um, I don't think even the, the people in the story are doing this intentionally. They're not sort of intentionally um, manipulating this person into who they think uh, he ought to be or, or what not, but rather they're simply caught up in the normativity of their worlds. They're simply caught up um, in this idea that, the, for the people in the story, they're simply caught up in the normativity that they enjoy a particular privilege 
and that that particular privilege happens to, to look one particular way, and that's white. And when someone comes in to that whiteness and sort of uh, disrupts that normativity, then they really don't know what to do with it. They, they just cannot imagine that you know, the person that they want this person to be, they can't imagine Jesus as being anything other than them. And so, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's as if there's, you know, and we do this a lot, it's as if we just, we assume that, of course, Jesus would be someone who's employed or that Jesus is a hard worker. Of course, Jesus would have good hygiene and, and wear nice clothing. Of course, Jesus would fill in the blank for, for whatever, you know, category you want. Um, and that in this story, the way the person of the stranger, the way that Jesus operates, is that he defies that, that, that he can't be the person that these people want him to be because he's just, he's something else, and he's something else for other people. Um, and one of, the, one of the great insights running through this story in that regard is that the world is something that is constructed through our imaginations. And so I think what Du Bois is really showing us that a failure, the failure to recognize Jesus is really a failure of imagination. And so, for example, if we imagine the world as a place where there are just certain social structures that are unmovable, that are just there, and we can't do anything about them in our world. If we imagine the world as, as being that, then it's very, very hard to imagine Jesus coming into this world and making any difference whatsoever. It's very hard to imagine Jesus showing up as a stranger uh, and sort of uh, encounter, asking us to, to be different than who we, who we think we are and who we think that Jesus ought to be. And so in this sense of, of imagination and the, the world that we create through our imagination, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on, on uh, how, how we construct the world through our imaginations? How does, how does our imagination work and, and construct these sorts of worlds? And also, what, what sort of social imagination does the gospel call us to, to exercise? Yeah, Josh. Yeah, so I, at least for me, with the sort of Baptist worldview that I've brought up in, there were really only two categories of people. There were saved people and then lost people. Um, and when you have that sort of a worldview, it makes Jesus really the ultimate insider. He's the guy who sort of has all of the knowledge over here on the saved side of things. Um, and I think when you construct it in that way, and we're sort of looking out at this vast, lost population, that we forget to see Jesus instead out among the lost rather than sort of behind us uh, in the capital of, of, of our neatly constructed church identity um, of these, these saved people. So uh, I think in some ways the, the idea of in and out that we use to create church identity inflects the way that we see the person of Jesus. Yeah, definitely. And the way in and out operates in, in that sense is, is usually saved and unsaved, which is also usually sort of 
unrelated to, to people's bodies in real places and the, the real physical materiality of, of social life. Um, so, you know, when we, we tend to, to abstract Jesus into this, this person who uh, makes a difference in our lives on a sort of spiritual level, on a sort of, uh, you know, level where, you know, we, we have our, our real day-to-day lives and interactions in the world. Um, but Jesus doesn't really sort of, you know, come into that, that world very often um, in very visibly ways. Instead, you know, we, we abstract Jesus into, you know, uh, an assurance about something to do with, with the life after this world or something to do with uh, some sort of cosmic, you know, um, status of our souls or whatever. And, and so it's, it's very easy when, when the gospel is sort of uh, watered down to those types of terms terms that don't really relate to our actual bodies or don't really relate to our real, concrete, social, economic, uh, uh, material lives, then, then it's very easy to manipulate Jesus into whoever we want him to be. And um, it's very easy to manipulate groups of people um, into you know, class- classifications of, of saved or unsaved or... Um, you know, heathen and saint, or or whatever. You know, um, so yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. You talk about imagination, and I think imagination is one of the ways in which we're like God. God's a creator God, and we're 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 subcreators. In fact, we're tasked with being subcreators. We're meant to be creator, just like God is. And imagination is an important part of that. Um, and one of the things that have power is obviously how we frame the world, how we then see the world, and how we behave. And so it's this really kind of, you know, divine way, um, aspect of the mind that we participate in. But of course, when it's foreign, then it's, then it's sort of <coughs> worse than some other aspects of our, of our being. And so, certainly in the Protestant church, we are afraid of the imagination. We, we don't do that, we don't have pictures. We don't uh, ever talk about literature in church except yeah, nice way. And we, you know, while somehow we let music sneak in the back door, we can't keep that in control too. And but yeah, we don't actually try and cage the imagination. Certainly, most of churches work pretty hard to to not don't use your imagination. Christians aren't making your imagination. Work, we'll Oh wow! 
streak is automatic. <clears throat> and so we got him, you know, we have this shadow imagination, but we actually have, do have you know, this shadow suppressed imagination. We do think about a thing, but they are articulated until there's a collision. And so Jesus' role in the story, right at the time of the Bible, is to orchestrate those conditions to make us kind of start playing different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Great point. Our, uh, our, the imagination is such a, such a powerful tool, and, and as Du Bois really shows us that you know, failure of imagination uh, can be the, the production of death um, in this case. I think one of the most powerful moments in this whole story that really drives home Du Bois' sort of broader, broader point is the collision between the woman who has been talking to Jesus and the convict who is running to embrace him. Um, and so the, the lack of imagination that, that the woman has as she is talking to this stranger, um, the, the lack of imagination that leads her to freak out when, when Jesus reveals himself as he really is, the lack of imagination is the, is the site where fear is produced and where fear sort of takes... Uh, takes the reality in her running away and literally stopping the convict who is running towards Jesus with open arms, ready to receive the embrace of grace, ready to receive Jesus. Uh, the woman's lack of imagination literally blocks the reception of grace. Um, and I think Du Bois is really pointing out, you know, the, the fact of the failure of the imagination of white Christianity, the failure of imagination uh, at work as people encounter Jesus, is the production of the sight of death, um, where the failure of imagination actually blocks and stifles other people's reception of grace, uh, and so on. Does anyone have any other thoughts about imagination and, and what's going on here? Well, I, I have a friend who uh, uh, teaches philosophy and ethics to uh, community college students out in Minneapolis. And they're, uh, a lot of them are Somali refugees, so they're Muslim. And he's been really shaped by that experience to the point where... It, he, he now says that God is coming back to the West through Islam. And the, the, his, his notion is wherever you look at people who are on the wrong side of power in the world, you'll, that's where you're going to find Jesus. And because Muslims around the world are criticizing the West for its capitalism and the way that we've used power, essentially, then that's from, from God, and it it seems to me that that was uh, that was the message we were getting from the slaves, and we were getting from you know African free free blacks in, in Jim Crow is you know you're on the, you're on the wrong side you're you're not on God's side you're on the wrong side of this I, I, I that to me is uh, it's kind of a you know 
just a, it shatters my imagination. It's, a, it's, a, it's amazing use of imagination. Yeah, and that's, and that's what's so hard for the white characters in the story to, to imagine that, that Jesus would be on the wrong side of the social equation, that Jesus would actually be found at the site of, uh, of where power has, has run over uh, people and so on. Thanks, Jesse. So I wanted to wrap up with uh, the distinction between two different ways of searching for God or searching for Jesus. Um, one of the things that I think this story really gives us is, is a dis- such is two distinctions between approaching Jesus. And the first, the first one, there are two types of questions, rather, I should say. The first one, the first question that, that this is the question that I think Du Bois is really fighting against in the story, is what I call the how question. Um, and so examples of the how question would be, how does Jesus fit into my worldview? How is Jesus possible? How can Jesus be fully man and fully God? How can Jesus reconcile enemies? How does Jesus save us? And so on. We ask how it's possible. And to ask how is really to ask how can I classify Jesus so that Jesus will make sense in my constructed imaginative world? So the how question is therefore really the type of question that refuses an encounter with Jesus. It bypasses an actual meeting with Jesus and bypasses an actual meeting with the person that is standing in front of us. The how question is what really produces a world for for certain people, Jesus is only intelligible as a white savior. So the other question, and this is the question I think Du Bois really challenges us to learn to ask. The other question is called, or is what I call, the who question. And that is, who are you, Jesus Christ, as opposed to how are you possible, Jesus Christ, or how can you fit into to my worldview? So the who question Asking, who are you, Jesus Christ, is a question that allows Jesus to speak for himself. It is a mode of reading Jesus' story and reading the presence of God in our lives without our predetermined categories of appropriate or proper meaning. The who question, who are you, Jesus Christ, is the question that confesses we have nothing to give to God but our broken selves. It's the question that allows us to learn to hear God as God reveals God's self. And so to ask, who are you, Jesus Christ, is also to ask, who are you, my neighbor? It's to ask of the people that we encounter in our lives who they are. It's to ask them to speak for themselves. It's to ask them to not be classified by our schemes of predetermining who people are before we even meet them. The who question is really the question of unconditional love. And so 
As we go out into the world tonight, um, as we hear our next few songs and as we leave uh, and go out into the world, I encourage you to just allow this story to, to stay with you this week. Allow this story to speak to you as we encounter the world. Allow this story to lead us again and again and again to ask the question, who are you, Jesus Christ? And again and again and again, ask the question, who are you, this person that God has shown love to just as God has shown love to me? So as you go out and enjoy your weeks, I encourage you to, uh, to meet Jesus in the, the face of the other, the face who Jesus teaches us not to conform to who we think that, ought, that person ought to be, but to who that person really is, and meet God in that person. Amen. Yeah, thank you, David, very much. Thanks for diving in this week. The uh, story that we're going to use as our confession tonight in song is actually from another piece of fiction, and it is one of these confrontations of a person in their brokenness being confronted by another Christ figure. It's from the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's a C.S. Lewis book. Um, and uh, there's a place where um, Eustace is uh, turned into a dragon because he gets into a dragon's lair, and... Um, He's pretty miserable, terrible kid, and uh, everyone really can't stand him. And when he becomes a dragon, ironically, he's kind of as useful as he's ever been on this whole boat voyage that they're on. But um, he's miserable being a dragon because he can't really be friends with uh, his friends, and at a certain point he wants to be a boy again. And So he's trying to scrape uh, the, the dragon scales off washing in this pool because he runs into the... Christ figure Aslan and he tells him to wash in the pool and take his skin off and he takes a bit of skin off and it doesn't he's still a dragon and he does it again and he's still a dragon and and uh, the lion finally looks at him and says would you like some help and he says yeah I just I really want to be different and uh, the lion said this is gonna hurt a little bit and the lion reached with his claws and just ripped off this enormous hulking skin and he said it was the worst feeling and the best all at the same time and then he was a boy again. And so I think as our confession tonight, um, if we can hear this idea that in our brokenness as we come, as we ask to be remade, um, then that's a place where God can give us new imagination. September, cool breeze that sifts through the hot summer air. Been a long time since I washed in the river, knocked the dust from my eyes, put a comb in my hair. Been a long time since I felt forgiveness, arm on my shoulder to lighten my load. Been a long time since I looked in your eyes I wasn't afraid you would go Crush my bones, knock me over Rip me open and split my skin Fill me up, knit me together 
since I've walked in the mountains Where I was lost in the shimmering air Been a long time that I've walked in the desert Known to my bones too much solitude there Been a long time that my shadows have chased me As I looked over the shoulder on the darkening road Been a long time since I cared Crush my bones, knock me over Rip me open and split my skin Of the sky, the little keepers of 
the promise Falling on these souls The trout is dry In His blood and in His body In this bread and in this wine He's here of Christ in these lonely hearts Though our blindness separates us Still His light shines in the dark His outstretched arms Still strong enough to reach Behind these prison bars Set us free, so may peace rain down from heaven like little pieces of the sky, little keepers of the promise, falling on these souls. The trout is dry in his blood and in his body, in this bread and in this one thing rarely predictable. Uh, Jesus seems to be popping up in all the wrong places, dining with the wrong people, walking, speaking with all the, the people that are not the people that he ought to be talking to. Jesus is rarely predictable and understandable. And frankly, I think that ought to scare the hell out of us. It's deeply offensive in a certain way. It's deeply kind of disconcerting that Jesus would not pop up in the ways that we expect him to, walk, to, to pop up. And frankly, this meal that we're about to partake in is also something that's offensive. It's, it's in some sense disconcerting and disruptive to the way that we normally think. I mean, after all, we just asked you to confess your sins and to receive absolution. That's a little bit off-putting. 
that I would need to confess anything, that I would need to ha- receive anything from God, that there would be bread and wine here provided. Does God not think I can put bread on my own table or wine in my own cup? That's a bit offensive. It's a bit unpredictable. But I think what we are being taught here is that the Christian life is not about one of being independent, of making our own way, of providing for ourselves. But the call of Christianity is a deep call to extreme vulnerability. That it is a call to live in a world where the lines, the categories, the rubrics of understanding are quite different. That a church gathered together so often is one where this is kind of a nice networking area. Who are the people I need to get to know to get to the next stage of my life? But that is not the church that Christ had in mind. Instead, the church is a community of people called to deep vulnerability, fragility, and interactions that in some ways move us maybe in the opposite direction on the social ladder. As we come to the table tonight, we are reminded that Christ comes to us as a gift, but as a gift that's going to shock our sensibilities, that's going to shock the way that we normally think and the the way we normally try to predict things, that Christ comes to us as a gift that reorders all of our imagination. As ministers in this church, you are being called to a table tonight that helps you reimagine what service in the kingdom might look like, who your neighbor might be, how we interact with one another, and how we interact with those in our larger community. Tonight, as we come to the table, we are all being gathered around a somewhat off-putting, offensive table that says to us, to receive the gospel of God, we're going to first have to be extremely vulnerable. That we're going to have to receive this gift almost in contrast to our expectations. At Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table, meaning all of you are invited. We break bread for one another in line, sharing it with one another, saying, the body of Christ broken for you, and pouring wine or juice for one another, saying, the blood of Christ shed for you. We do that, exchanging the grace of God with one another in recognition that we don't live life on our own, that we cannot make a future worth livable for ourselves but that we must receive it as a gift and that that grace has been given to us in Christ and in this community. After we receive communion, I'll invite you back, or Wade will invite us back to the circle to sing a song of benediction. So tonight it's kind of a a tension-filled Eucharist we're going to celebrate. On the one hand, the celebration of the gift of God, of grace into our lives, but also with the reality that we are being called into some very delicate vulnerabilities. That we are being stretched, we are being pulled into the unpredictable. Into 
the relational world of those that don't look just like us, that don't think just like us. But as we learn from Du Bois' story tonight, just might be the voice of Christ into our existence. I invite you now to come celebrate the table, the gift of God for you, the people of God. Amen. are in line for communion now we're going to do our song of benediction it's a Patty Griffin song when it don't come easy reminding us that uh, God is actually seeking us seeking to love us red lights flashing on the highway Wonder if we're ever gonna get home Wonder if we're ever gonna get home tonight The waters get rough Best intentions may not be enough Wonder if we're ever gonna get home If you break down, drive out and find you. If you forget my love, try to remind you. Stay by you. Don't come easy. Don't come. Such a change will come Year after year What we do is undone Time gets moving From a crawl to a run Wonder if we're ever Gonna get home You're out there walking Down a highway All the signs They got blown away Sometimes you wonder Walking in the wrong direction If you break down 
going to be celebrating um, with Sarah and for Sarah here at the end there will be celebration with cake um, and um, other snacks I think that are left over there um, so I mind you to stick around for that also in conclusion he's talking right now but I'd like to invite AJ up here if he would come uh, am I correct in assuming this is your last Sunday with us before you head out um, so we would like to pray for AJ before he heads out um, off to UVA to we won't say greener pastures, but we'll say different pastures. <laughs> um, can we pray for you? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. God, we thank you for the wonderful gift of friendship in our lives. We thank you that you've created us not to be independent and lonely beings, but to be communal beings, to be creatures and animals that crave friendship, that crave, crave relationship. God, we thank you for the gift of AJ in our midst, for the, the wonderful intelligence, the wonderful uh, humor, um, the gift of honesty that he has brought to our community. We pray for him now as he goes out, uh, that, Lord, you would continue to grow his imagination, to grow his intellect, uh, to let him use those gifts to serve your church, that he would continue to be as he has been a servant of your gospel in this community and also in the many communities that he'll touch in the future. Give him your grace as he goes. Lord, let him find friendship, companionship, community in, in the place where he's going. And God, also 
provide for him in the ways and in the needs that he has. We thank you once again for the time that he shared with us and for the time that we've shared with him. Bless us now as we go out. All these things we ask in your son's name. Amen. Go in peace. Amen. Or eat cake in peace. Or eat cake in peace. <laughs>